golfers are playing better than expected when they're playing well, all of a sudden they lose confidence. And that just doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. Why would you lose confidence when you're having a good round and you're playing really well? And welcome back to another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Seven Singer. Mr. Matt Cermak is with me. What's going on, my man? We just had an awesome conversation with Dr. Patrick Cohn. These conversations keep getting better, Adam. They really uh, do. You know, I think uh, <laughs> we're having more fun than ever. So, no, uh, this, this train is zipping down the tracks. Guys, just so. to give you a little context, once we got off the air with Patrick, Matt looked at me on Zoom and he goes, dude, you were really you were feeling pretty passionate there. You were getting pretty fired up. I mean, I said, Matt, this is the stuff I love the most. So I guess look out for that. You guys are going to feel me, my heart on this one. I mean, I I saw it. I saw that light. It was beaming. All right. Well, in case you guys are new, welcome. When you're on the par train, golf, the hardest game in the world feels easy. We've all experienced it, even for two holes. Our mission is to understand why that is so we can make other hard stuff seem easy and help you get better on and off the course with interviews from PGA tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, mental coaches, and sports psychologists like today with Dr. Patrick Cohn and many more. You'll get the motivation to keep chugging and the tools to finally enjoy the ride again. Before we get to this interview with Dr. Patrick Cohn, uh, guys, our friends at Roback, uh, let's talk about their performance t-shirts for a second. They got long sleeve, short sleeve, uh, this Sam W wrote as a loyal rowback polo shirt customer, I decided to give their performance t-shirt a try. It's comfortable. Moisture wicking fits. Well, it's all the great things about their performance polo in a t-shirt form would absolutely recommend working out, running and craving activity. That's this. So, that is such a telling review. I play squash in the t-shirts multiple times a week. So guys, like also, racket, you guys like racket sports. The t-shirts are great. <laughs> <laughs> also, I've heard many people say that the rowback t-shirts make you look jacked. The way they're set up makes the chest pop, tapers down on the midsection, doesn't... Well, that's doesn't, a, yeah. I mean, it, it helps, right? Hit the link in the show notes. Um, no need to enter a promo code. It'll auto-apply in your cart. So you get 15% off your first rowback shirt, hoodie, Q-zip, polo, hat, whatever you want to get. They've got it all. Um, and it's also linked in our social accounts at the part train. Definitely give us a follow if you don't follow us already. Okay. Let's talk about this episode. Um, Dr. Patrick Cohn is a sports psychologist, works in all sports, written a a million different books. If you guys go to his website at peaksports.com or sportspsychologygolf.com, he literally has anything you'd ever ask for has been doing it for decades. So I always love these conversations because this is stuff. We love talking about, and we try and make it as relatable as we can. It's great to get someone that lives and breathes this every day. And I thought there is probably 25 different lessons that could change your game potentially. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation of, as we kind of really continue to focus on the mental game. It's always really cool to talk with a sports psychologist who's worked with tour players and yeah. major winners. You know, Dr. Cohn worked with, he's, he just named a few, but he's worked with a lot. But Larry Mize, who won the Masters, uh, Greg Kraft, and uh, Grant Waite, who were multiple tour, multiple-time tour winners in the 90s. So that perspective is, was fascinating. We talked about the tour players. 
you know, I talked a little bit about my experiences and your experiences as being good amateur players. We also really talk about what those 15 to 20 handicappers need to be thinking about, or maybe need to tweak their thinking a little bit. Right. Um, He has a, he's got quite a system and he's got quite a way of kind of just cutting through the complicated details, if that makes sense. It was a really great conversation. Yeah. Usually our interviews, I mean, they're all great, but every interview sometimes can have a lull, you know, and you have a few parts that you really liked. I felt like from start to finish, there were gold nuggets across the entire show. So definitely make sure you listen to the end. We kind of talked towards about the yips and different things that players can go through towards the end. So definitely check that out. And if you're not currently following us um, on Spotify, give us a follow, give us a subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts and write us a review. Thank you guys so much. Um, We will see you next Sunday. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned. Some giveaways soon on the Instagram. The giveaways have been great. Yep. Some good stuff coming. coming. Yep. All right, guys. Stay well, be healthy, and uh, enjoy the ride. See you guys. So before we really dive in, because we like to go deep here on the train, we're going to dive into some concepts. We're going to pressure test. We're going to embrace debate. But... Before we dive into what a lot of golfers and our listeners struggle with mentally, we kind of want to know about Dr. Patrick Cohn, the golfer himself. I mean, how much are you playing? Tell us a little bit about your game and, you know, what do you still struggle with yourself out on the course? I think that'd be interesting for people to hear. Yeah, good question. So I grew up, I played a little bit of junior golf early on and then Back when I was a kid, it wasn't cool, right, to be a golfer. It was, you, you had to play more macho sports like football and hockey and lacrosse, and that's exactly what I did um, up in western New York. Um, so I dropped it until college. Um, I didn't play, and then I started a little bit in college and then, and then after. So um, I struggled early on with the emotional control when I started playing the game. You know, trying to keep control of when you hit a bad shot and or you have a bad hole and just letting that go, you know, just being a hothead, you could say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was difficult for me. I got to the point where I was about an eight handicap, um, and that's kind of where I had stayed. Um, I haven't played in a little bit, like in about a year or two, just because I've had some shoulder issues, probably because of the football and the hockey. (laughs) <laughs> ironic doctor welcome to the show um you've written several books and you've pointed out kind of famously you know the 10 costly mental mistakes athletes make before competition i guess you know maybe we may end up diving into all 10 but is there two or three you would hone in on or that seem to be talked about more having high expectations for example a lot of the perfectionists that i work with they have high expectations. They set a target score, target range, which um, I don't agree with when you go out and play golf. And so when I say high expectations, I'm talking about ball striking. I'm talking about making all your short putts. I'm talking about hitting the ball straight. I mean, there's a lot that kind of goes into that notion of high expectations. That would be one, um, you know, and focusing on those target scores. Um, another one I call is the fragile confidence or the reactive confidence. Like have you ever had a round where you didn't hit it well early in the round or you didn't hit it well 
maybe in your warm up, and now you're thinking, oh, it's going to be one of those days I'm going to struggle all day. So confidence kind of goes out the window. So I call that fragile confidence. Mm -hmm. um, that's another big challenge for golfers as well. And um, we could also say practicing in the warm up. The warm up is not a practice session at all. Mm -hmm. It should be just a warm up, and you don't have to win the warm up, as my mentor Ken Revisa used to say. Yeah, it's, that's uh, that's an interesting point there. So just for some context, doctor, I grew up playing um, as a junior and I played division one golf. So I didn't play professionally, but, I, you know, a, a, a high enough level and mm -hmm. the pre-round warmup was so key, right? So oftentimes we're just grinding, working on moves, working on mechanics when that was our biggest enemy, you know? And I think, especially when you're trying to, that desire to get better, but the range should just be for getting loose finding who you are that day, right? Understanding your bones and just keeping a clear head going to the first tee. Yeah, absolutely. Just find the ball flight and don't fight it. Like if you like to draw the ball, but you're not hitting the draw, then just go with, go with the cut until things start to straighten out. A lot of golfers will make that error. They're going to go out and fight it and try to figure out how to hit that draw. Now they're playing golf swing instead mm -hmm. of just trying to get the ball to the target, which is what you have to do on the golf course is be more target oriented rather than mm -hmm. swing oriented. You said something about obviously expectations will probably be a theme of things we talk about, um, but also short putts. And I know this isn't your book, but it made me think of something that we haven't really talked about on the show before, which is, I believe the title of the book was make every putt. Uh, I forget that the author, I'll have to check it and we can put it in the show notes, but um I remember the whole point of that book was the way that most golfers look at if you made the putt, I see it as only the ball going into the hole. And the way the book talks about making the putt is, did you make your putt on your line, right? Did you hit the putt the way that you intended? And if you did, then you can make every putt every round. It might not go in. It might hit something. It might go offline. You might have misread it. but. I think that's an important piece to this is it sounds subtle, but it's so different to just focus on making the best swing, the best putt than you possibly can, and then let everything else be as it may. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's about the attempt, I call it. Yeah. Like um, you're a great hitter in baseball if you, you know, win three out of 10 times. Right. And it's the same thing in putting, right? How do you deal with the failure? So we do talk quite a bit about having that good attempt rather than focusing so much on the outcome. Um, I worked with a guy early on. I worked out on tour quite a bit in the early 90s with golfers before I got married and had kids. Um, and there was a guy out there named Greg Kraft who was a great putter. He was known as a great putter. You remember him, Matt? I do, yeah. And um, um, I did a little bit of work with, with Greg, but he said to me, you know, I make – I hit my line 95% of the time. I said, wow. So, oh, no, I don't make 95% of my putts, believe me. But he says, my objective is to hit my line with that attempt and have the ball rolling at a pace that I want around the hole. If I do that, I'm successful. So in his mind, he's successful 90, 95% of the time on the greens rather than that um, 30% you know, or that 40% of makes that you have. So I, I love that notion of the goal is to hit your line with the right pace. And if you do that, it was a good attempt. 
But you could also add to the mental side of that is also a good attempt. Did you get a good read? Did you commit to your read and not get wishy-washy, right? Yep. Did you believe that it could go in? Did you stay focused on the process? So that's a big thing for me is not standing up over the ball thinking, well, I need this for my power. I need this for my birdie is right. focusing more on the process of execution as Larry Mize uh, uh, talked about it. When I interviewed Larry Mize for my book, the mental art of putting, he said, it's about focusing on execution. And I asked him that I said, well, does that mean stroke making a good stroke? He said, no, that comes from practice. Said folks on execution is thinking about launching it down your line with the right speed. Evan and I were talking uh, offline. You know, um, we can imagine that a lot of what you do is you try to, you know, you try to make things simple for your students, right? Because we're in the information age, right? Where we have so much access, right? And especially when we're struggling with our swing, just pull up YouTube. The mental side is so similar to the physical side because, like, well, I'll just read this next book, I'll just go to this next seminar, I'll just Talk about that. You know, I see my job uh, a lot of the times when I'm working with golfers, it's about simplifying, as you said, Matt, because golf can become a very complex technical game, especially when you're dealing with perfectionists, right? Mm -hmm. um, another guy, uh, tell another story, Grant was a two-time winner out there. Yeah. I worked with Grant, just an incredible ball striker. You know, he had great he athlete. Struggled a little bit with the putting. He was on and off with the putting, he had a little bit of a streaky putter. But, you know, there's a guy that, you know, maybe how much could it better could he have been if he didn't look at so much video and he didn't analyze the swing so much and think a lot about the mechanics, uh, you know, on the golf course. So it is very much about simplifying. And when I'm working with my clients, Matt, I tell them, Hey, I'm going to disagree with your instructor. Okay. Because I don't want you to focus on the golf swing out there. I want you to use what you have that day. Uh, focus on target or tempo. I call it loosely target or tempo and not start analyzing and assessing bad shots. Now your instructor is going to tell you something different, right? They're going to tell you, you know, go to your ball position, go to your setup, go to your takeaway, whatever if it's not working. And so I start from that perspective and tell them, I'm going to disagree with your instructor. You have to decide what's right for you. It's interesting, Patrick, like the work you do with your students, you know, had to be done with you at some point too, learning to be a teacher and a coach. And we know you worked with Bob Rotella and we were just curious if, you know, what, what was the biggest takeaway for you? If you could narrow it down to one simple thing that Obviously, everyone has their own styles and takes different things from different places and people. But what was the most impactful thing you learned from Bob? Well, there's a lot of things. But from a style perspective, in terms of how he goes about it, he's not so much about the why or understanding why people are sabotaging themselves on the golf course. He's more about do this. His hmm. approach was all about being confident on the inside, you know, what we call being cocky on the inside, having that supreme uh, confidence, and then going out and trusting what you have um, on the golf course. So his approach was different from someone like Ken Revisa, who was also my mentor out of Cal State Fullerton in the mid 80s. Ken was very much technique and very much strategy and, and having more of an understanding. 
Whereas Bob was just do this. It's worked for other golfers. You'll be successful if you do this. Mm -hmm. So very kind of straightforward. So it was all about confidence and trust. Ken, for example, Ken Revisa, who had a big influence on me, it was all about, you know, controlling yourself, controlling your nerves, controlling the frustration. And his thing was, you have to control yourself before you can control your performance. So much different approaches. And I, I was really lucky to be exposed to, you know, both approaches of guys that are out there in the trenches, you know, working with athletes every day. So how would you define your style then? You've kind of had two different mentors there. How, how would you define yours? Yeah, I've had many mentors, you know, over the years, but those are obviously the two biggest, the two most influential. My program today is all about, you could say, beliefs, but it's all about managing expectations. My formula for success is no expectations, high confidence, and setting manageable objectives. And that's where I start with all my students with that particular lesson. So it's a, I, I characterize myself as very cognitive behavioral. Do these steps in your pre-shot routine, that's going to lead to more consistency. So good thinking, all about good thinking, good belief system uh, when you go play. I love that. So let's dig in on that a little bit. So mm -hmm. good thinking and controlling, not necessarily controlling your mind, but observing your mind and then being able to come back and restart uh, is the key. So, and I know awareness is so big. And I want to talk about awareness training and practices a little bit, because in my experience, um, it's almost impossible to begin shifting and tweaking your thoughts in real time. If you don't have enough awareness to understand the negative stuff coming in and the spiral that that can create. So, but I, that's also, we should say, that's one of the hardest parts about working with golfers is because awareness training and practices take months to not years to be able to start to notice your thoughts before you say them out loud. So maybe talk a little bit about the importance of awareness with you and your students. Very big part of my program. I think you're right on about the awareness. Um, and that's what, you know, separates me from Bob's approach today. He wasn't so much about awareness as he was about do these things, do these steps. Um, if you're standing up over a three footer and you're worried about embarrassing yourself and what other golfers are going to think, you need to understand that you need to be aware that you're too concerned about the outcome and what others think. But that may be a very normal process for golfers today is they have that mentality where they're more focused on the outcome and missing and what others are going to think. So you do have to have that awareness. And a lot of times I'm helping golfers develop that awareness. My, what I teach other mental coaches and coaches is it's education or I'm sorry, it's awareness, education, practice, and application. That's my whole, you know, um, approach in my MGCP certification program. So awareness is always the first step. And then developing the strategies to change that thinking, that thought process to be more effective and more instrumental. And then obviously 
uh, applying it, but through practice first. Yeah, so this is really interesting. I actually wrote a quote down that's really relevant to this. You said, I find that many of my mental coaching students worry too much about outcomes related to what others may think, what you just said, right? Um, from the fear of feeling embarrassed or letting down teammates if they make a ga game ending mistake. And I was thinking a lot about this yesterday because it's interesting to me. It's actually not as much about the actual outcome. It's about how others perceive you for that outcome. And I thought that that's interesting. I'd love for you to talk more about that. So it's, it comes under the category of what we call social approval, as you, as you probably know, Evan, social approval is when athletes are very much tapped into and make a lot of assumptions about what others are thinking. It's a mm -hmm. source of fear of failure. It's, a, it's the number one source of fear of failure for athletes and what causes them to tighten up when they go play. So absolutely. And um, when it comes to that, that social approval, it's very much tied into a couple of things. It's tied into perfectionism. I find if I'm working with a perfectionist, they're often worried and concerned about what others are going to say or do. Um, and it's also tied into what we call self-worth. If I don't have full self-worth or full self-esteem, then I'm going to be looking for that from other people around me. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm going to be really tapped into what I think they're thinking. And that's really freeing, right, Patrick? Because then the, the worry or the focus actually is less about, God, I just don't focus about hitting a bad shot. Don't focus on making a double here when I have the lead. It's more about feeling free to know that whatever you do, you don't need that to validate you and you don't need the approval of others to be confident in yourself as a person. And that goes well beyond golf, right? I think that's a really freeing lesson for people um, that will then translate to obviously better play on the course. But I, I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's massive. I mean, nine out of the 10 of our clients are in that perfectionist mold that worry about what others think. And so we have to remove that obstacle for them to free up. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get to the course, doctor. Let's take, let's get out there. Let's kind of break down some situations a little bit. Mm -hmm. The classic story of, let's say a good player, a single digit, or even a 15 handicapper, a single digit makes two birdies in a row. The 15, 18 handicapper makes three pars in a row. And it's hard stay aggressive, or as you would say, stay on offense. It is because we've been unexpected by our results, right? We, we just want the, you know, we just want to know what's going to happen. When you make two birdies in a row or you make a, a couple of pars in a row, that kind of gets to you. And then how many times do we blow up, you know, on that next couple, the next hole, because we get, we get defensive and we're concerned about being very successful. So how do you stay on offense when your mind is racing out there when you just want to play well? So, so talk about that, this idea. When you want to get it in, right? When you want to get <laughs> it in, oh, geez, you know, I'm a couple under. I just got to get it in now or right. get to the I'm clubs, playing right? better than expected. <laughs> um, this is awesome, but it's also frightening. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you're right. Golfers will slam on the brakes. They'll get defensive. And then they start looking at where not to hit the ball, where not to make bogeys, where not to make doubles. And so that's all part of that defensive mindset. 
So they start playing differently. They start playing more protective. Um, one of the things I found, a phenomenon that I found, I found when golfers are playing better than expected when they're playing well, all of a sudden they lose confidence. And that just doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. Why would you lose confidence when you're having a good round and you're playing really well? It just, it's bizarre. Um, but I think it comes down to the anticipation of where am I going to shoot myself in the foot? I've done it in the past and where am I going to shoot myself in the foot? So strategy wise, I talk about keeping your foot on the gas pedal. What do you have to do? Well, set some uh, objectives for yourself that maybe you want to have two birdie opportunities on the last four holes, or maybe you want to hit three out of four greens if you're a good golfer or two out of four greens coming down the stretch. So I try to get golfers to stay in that aggressive mindset by giving them objectives to focus on. Um, and certainly they have to go back and continue to just play that hole and play that one shot, but not start looking around at, okay, where's the water? Where's the, where's the out of bounds? Where's the bunkers? But can, <clears throat> excuse me, continue to focus on the target. All right, hang tight, guys. We're going to do a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back to the interview. Imagine Golf. Have you guys heard of this new app? It is unbelievable, guys. You guys are into the mental game. We're into the mental game. Imagine Golf is all about the mental game. Okay, they have over 100,000 students, a 4.9 star rating, thousands of reviews, and the app can be totally custom to you. It's super cool. So when you first open the app, they got a bunch of different sections to make it personal to you. So you can click on pro tips, consistency, visualizations, shot strategies, range drills, stories, etc. We're even talking to them about maybe doing our own teaching series uh, in the future from all the lessons we've learned on the train. But anyways, guys, go to imaginegolf.com slash the par train to download the app. Make sure you use this special link because that's the way that they're tracking who downloads the app in from listening to this show in the month of January. And guess what? They're going to pick one person to get a brand new Scotty Cameron putter of your choice. Any Scotty Cameron up to 400 bucks, which is really most of them. Uh, but so it, it's really a no brainer. You're going to help your mental game. There's a seven day free trial. So don't worry if you're not ready to pay monthly yet. It's a small payment per month, but there's a seven day trial. Get the app at imaginegolf.com slash the partrain and improve your game on and off the course with the best mental game tips from anywhere around. And you might win a new Scotty Cameron putter. Sounds like a win-win to me. Hope you guys are enjoying it out there. Enjoy the ride. And uh, let's get back to the interview. Right. I mean, in, in, and I've listened to you, you know, talk about this. Uh, the attachment to score is just, is just the biggest problem for the, you know, that player that has that good front nine and has that poor back nine, right? Why is that? Did they, you know, they didn't just change, you know, in a matter of an hour, their mind took over, right? So you talk about not keeping score and, right, there's a power to that. Maybe is that when you go out and get, play nine holes and get paired up with a few randoms, just what's the point? You mentioned a point system. What does that look like for somebody who's really struggling with, you know, the ups and the downs of the day. Yeah. So um, the point system is basically trying to get golfers away from being so score oriented. You're right. Score is a limiting 
factor, I think, you know, just like times split times are limiting for, for swimmers and runners um, because it's all expectation based, mm -hmm. right? Oh, well, wait, I just shot, you know, 38 on the front. Um, I could have a career round. Wow. This is incredible. So score is that limiting factor. So the point system is one strategy to help golfers try to stop focusing so much on what score they have on every hole and adding it up and extrapolating to the end of the round. Right. Right. So it's maybe, it could be anything. It could be, you get a point for an up and down, you get a point for maybe making a birdie or making a solid par, depending on your level, you assign points for things that you're doing, like hitting fairways, hitting greens, getting up and down, maybe one putting could be a point in and of itself. And so you're focusing more on the essence of playing golf and that's hitting fairways and greens. The other thing I'll do, which, which I think is, is the lesser of two evils is get them to focus on their stats. I want you to keep track of your stats, fairways, greens, up and downs, one putts, nothing else. So record something else to get you away from the score. It's very similar to that point system. It's funny, Ev, we were just talking about this before we went live here about the pros and the cons of keeping stats, right? Yeah. It's, it's good to know what you're doing, but it can overcome you, right? And actually trick you on progress versus not progress yeah, yeah if it's an expectation i gotta hit 10 fairways or i gotta hit nine greens um certainly setting those expectations for the stats can also get in the way too it's similar to score well it's interesting Patrick. you remind me of this story i had where i had an epiphany with my own game which was you know you tell people don't focus on score sometimes it goes in one ear out the other like well what do you mean <laughs> that's literally how I play. And that's what everyone talks about. So what I found helpful, that was a little bit like halfway there. It, it got me to not care about score as much through a, a, a tool was I realized I had the exact same th thing happen. You described, right? Unbelievable front nine. I'm on 12. I'm, I'm on track to maybe shoot my best score, maybe even par for the first time. I mean, par train heard of it you know it'd be a dream to ride the par train the whole time and uh so i realized what am i going to do if i shoot my best score well i'm going to call my one of my best friends <laughs> matt and i's mutual best friend on the way home and we're going to talk through it all and i realized if i shoot let's say i don't shoot a 72 i shoot a 74 i'm still going to call him and we're going to talk through every shot i realized nothing changes in my life if I shoot one score or the other, obviously every, everyone wants to achieve their best score. It's cool to say I shot even par once, but nothing changes. And that kind of freed me up um, on the back nine because I realized I'm going to call them anyways and we're going to talk through it. Yeah, I love that. It's, would you say it's putting it into perspective? Yeah. Yep. It's awesome. A little harder if you're trying to make a cut, you sure. know, in a tournament. A little bit harder if you're you're concerned about what your parents are going to think if you don't come in number one on the sure. team, um, you know, and some of those other extraneous things. It's it's harder to put that into perspective like that. Yep. Yeah. No. Definitely. So when I was playing my best golf or are playing my best golf, doctor, a couple of things that I feel like I'm very aware of, and I and I want to share this because I'm curious to what conversations you've had with tour players uh, with all the work you've done. 
but also what you know our middle to higher handicap range listeners can also take. So for me, I was I'm always when I'm playing well, I'm focused on taking deep breaths out there. I'm focused on big targets that I can swing hard at, and I'm focused on where I need to miss it because I know most of the time I'm not going to hit it the way I want. So that that's kind of for me when I when I think about my rounds and I look back about the good rounds versus the bad rounds. I'm most aware of those three kind of areas. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what conversations like with tour players are and, you know, maybe what um, more of the average golfer can take away. Yeah. So I, I wrote a book called going low. And what I did is I went out and interviewed people with career role, low rounds, including 59s and 60s and um, so that's obviously this is more at the, at the higher level yeah. from this perspective, but what I found out is the most important thing is staying aggressive when you're playing well, you know, like, like Steve Lowry was one of them. He shot 60, I think maybe at the Southern or something like that. And he said, um, Hey, you know, we just shot like 29 on the front and he turned to his caddy and said, you know, that 29 is nothing unless we can go back it up on the back nine. <laughs> so, um, and he did, he went out and he, he backed it up on the back nine. So it's the ability to say, I'm, I'm not ha happy with where I am. I might be seven under right now or six under, but that's not enough because I'm playing well. I'm going to continue to milk that. I'm going to continue to try to make birdies out here one at a time. So that's one thing that I've heard from doing a lot of the interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's, they feel like the stars align as well. And I don't like that notion that you have to play well when the stars align, but every club, you know, every distance was, I had a perfect club for every distance. Right. Um, oh, yeah. And just those type of things that are happening, you know, good. I'm getting good lies. I'm getting good bounces. I'm getting good breaks. They feel like all the breaks are going their way and they're getting those good numbers with the club so that they can hit that club tight. Those are some of the things that I hear when they're having the career low rounds. But um, from, an, from the amateur perspective, um, I feel like it's more about, I guess, the emotional control component, not getting upset when you have mm -hmm. that bogey or that double being able to rebound and bounce back and, and get right back to it instead of dwelling. Yeah. I think too often amateur players are, they are, they define themselves by good luck or bad luck, especially the bad luck, the bad bounce, right. Uh, the wind that they probably didn't actually check that came up. Right. I think those are sometimes those can define rounds and take them one way or the other. Yeah, well, as a as a high handicap or a middle handicap golfer, you know, you're gonna hit some bad shots. You're not a machine. You're not Iron Byron out there, and you got to be able to deal with some of those bad shots and those bad holes. Yeah, definitely. Do you do you feel like um, amateur players are more often dealing with mental blocks in the long game or the short game? How is it different in your experience? And, and we can talk about tour players too about. You know, those guys who, who, who are hit at 50 yards right off the tee, they can't release the golf club versus someone who has the yips, you know, on the. On the I green. deal more with putting and chipping issues like the yips and 
Yeah, yeah. And people get in their own way that they can't make a free stroke. So that to me is probably because, you know, I've, you know, built a business around helping people with the yips, For both sure. the throwing yips and the putting and chipping yips. So I get a lot of those people that come to me that have those, those challenges, amateurs and professionals alike. Um, it's the most difficult thing that I deal with because they come to me after they've had yips for five years and they're really, really ingrained in that, mm. that thinking. Talk to us about that a little bit more. What, what do you think causes the yips? And in your experience, what's the most important part to break that cycle? Yeah, so I, I, I do call it a cycle. Um, really, the yips, you, you're going to hear a lot of philosophies about the yips, but I look at it as a fear of failure, fear of embarrassment, over-control phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So what often happens is someone will have a bad putting round or a bad putting tournament, right? They'll go back and they'll start looking at their mechanics and they'll start diving in to putters, to stroke, to routine. They'll start changing a lot of the physical things. And now they've introduced inconsistency, right? Now they're fearful of missing. But why are they fearful of missing? I think it goes back to, you know, what Matt said earlier, what you guys have really been talking about. And that is, I'm, I'm not so much worried about the miss. They think they are. It's really about the embarrassment. So the fear of embarrassment, the fear of looking silly drives them to the over control. Yeah. Control being, I have to think about every element of the stroke in order to make a good stroke, which is false. Mm -hmm. So now they're sending so many signals to the body and they're so concerned about the outcome and the fear of embarrassment that hitting the ball is like there's a panic involved in hitting the ball. And that's yeah. where the stab and the jerk and the, yeah. the yip comes from is they're stabbing and jerking because they're just, it's just um, clogged. Their brain is clogged with too much information and that fear. Right. When you, when you watch, let's say that even the tour players who, who have maybe gotten the yips or were dealing with it, physically, when you watch them miss a eight-inch putt or a ten-inch putt, the head can't doesn't stay down, and if it's a right-handed putter, that right hand is just out of control, right? It is just, but they'll miss that putt, blow it by three feet, and then they'll knock that in with one uh, leaning on one foot, right? So talk about that right like to me it's like i mean can you they can't physically keep their head down because they're so overcome but the right hand i think is, is tricky too but when they don't think they can make that longer putt yeah but how are they going to approach that they're going to approach that as i need to be smooth with my right hand i need to put take the putter straight back and straight through i need to have the right grip pressure that's going to be their approach to solving it when all of those all that phenomenon that you you described all those physical changes are due to the mental part of the fear and trying to over control the stroke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And too often you're seeing teachers say, well, you go to the claw or go to the belly or go to the, when I think you're trying to get to the root and the core, like, you know, we'll use the claw if it really makes you that great, but that's not going to solve this. Right. Temporarily it can. <laughs> right. Temporarily it can. And it does sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, Patrick, because, you know, one of the guys I work with and coach, we talk about this a lot, 
And I found it's interesting that the, to me, it's about changing the relationship with the moment that has created pain and fear in it. So it's almost like we all saw that video like months, a few months ago about that guy that was on that walking trail and the mountain lion like came after him, right? It's a similar fight or flight response your body goes through, especially when there's years of it, because you have created this cycle of this condition, this thing that you feel utter shame and embarrassment about, worrying about what everyone else is thinking. So every time you go into that moment, doesn't matter how many physical changes you do, if you have that same relationship with it, meaning that is defining your identity, you're embarrassed and scared of it to do it again, basically trying to suppress it instead of accept it, it's very hard to break that cycle. Yeah, well said. I'm, I'm with you. Um, I, I don't think they're trying to suppress it. I think they don't understand it. As you said earlier on, it's about the awareness. Mm -hmm. It's making them aware of, of that relationship that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. I would. So this is the question, Patrick, I was looking most forward to asking you, I would love to dig into this a little bit. So I, I would love to debate the benefit of diagnoses and labels versus not. So like, for example, the yips, right? On one hand, it gives a golfer potentially some comfort that his or her issue is a known thing. Other people have experienced it. Other people have beaten it. But on the other hand, it has the potential to create a spiral of, I have this terrible condition, which inherently could make it harder to break in the first place. So I would love to debate the benefit of that. Yeah, just interestingly along that lines, we get contacted from parents and they don't know how to say, well, you, you might need to do some mental training or some mental coaching. They, they feel like it's gonna label the kid as there's something wrong with them mm -hmm. if they have to do mental training and mental coaching, which is you know far from the truth. Totally. I'm in the business of helping golfers be the best they can be through improving their mental game. It's not always about solving issues and, and challenges, right? But mm. yeah, it's, it's a good point. Even when, when we, we think about labeling people as perfect, well, you're a perfectionist. Some people are like, whoa, that's good. You know, others <laughs> call me a perfectionist, right? They, they yeah. like that. And others are like, well, no, that's bad, right? So. I think you're right. You have to be very selective and very careful about putting labels on uh, athletes that soon they're going to adopt that label um, as their own. Like I have the yips. I'm a yipper. I'm a choker. Mm -hmm. I'm a slow starter. Um, and so often I work with those athletes on trying to get them beyond those self labels that they've developed. Like. I can't close out the round or I'm a choker. They have to get, those are really damaging and they have to get beyond that. So you do have to be careful about giving people labels, but really helping them develop what I call self labels that are gonna be more effective. Um, like I can be a good putter. I can be a great putter um, and at least open the door up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me, Patrick, of the power of story, right? And narratives. And, mm -hmm. you know, one thing I've seen and heard is, to your point about perfectionism and going into the cycle of trying to figure it out after a bad putting day, 
you could create a story of I'm a, I'm a terrible putter or I'm in a putting slump, right? Versus you might have just had a bad day. You might just have struggled with the green speed. You might have played on a different type of green. Maybe it was conditions or maybe you just had a bad day. But so many golfers create a story which then leads to a spiral and a narrative that they could tell themselves for years. And this isn't just golf. This is everything. People walk around with stories. It's actually amazing, Patrick, how monumental it can be when you go through life thinking you have a flaw and someone compliments that flaw for the first time. And you're like, whoa, I've been self-conscious about this for 20 years. And you think I have, I have a, a good nose or whatever it is like that is really powerful. And that plays a part in golf too, with the stories you tell yourself, right? Huge, huge. I call it overgeneralizations, right? Based mm -hmm. upon one or two experiences, you generalize that you're going to continue to do that. Like I use the example of, you know, I, I grew up in Buffalo, uh, watching the Buffalo bills when the Miami dolphins came up to play in the snow, that it was like, well, we just can't play in the snow. We're not snowers, right? We're not yeah. mutters and we're not going to play well. So, and, and so that hurts the team mentality when they feel like that um, they're going to underperform when it's cold and snowy out. We just got two more questions for you and we'll get you out of here. Can we talk about the, the term one shot at a time? Sure. <laughs> We've all heard it. We all hear it all the time. Do you like one shot at a time? Because, you know, if, if you've got a par five, that's 550 yards, it's water right and dog leg left. It's kind of like a chessboard. You've got to, you've got to plan that hole, right? So it's hard to stay in the present. So is this what you do? Do, do, do you stick with one shot at a time with your players? Or do you try to frame it a little differently that maybe you found is more helpful or just connects better? We could un unwrap that. There's a lot there. Um, so people get frustrated when they hear strategy. it. <laughs> Absolutely have to have a strategy. But once I decide I'm going to hit it down the, the right side of the fairway and open up, you know, that par five for, you know, to be able to reach in two, that's great. But when it comes to the one shot at a time, I do as ascribe to that, but I don't think most golfers understand it mm. kind of at the level that I might. Right. Sure. So, when we're talking about one shot at a time, it really means focusing on the process. Like Larry Mize would say, focusing on the process of execution, right? So I dial it down for golfers and talk about there's a planning and programming stage, and then there's an execution stage. Mm -hmm. Now, each of those stages have their own little steps, and I don't, like, I don't try to overcomplicate it for them, but you do your homework. Then you have to plan the shot and program the shot. Then you have to stay focused on your shot, your target, your strategy, as you talked about. And then when you're up over the ball, it's about the setup, right? Feeling comfortable and not perfect with the setup. And then it's about having that simplicity of one swing thought. Yeah. So I get down to the nitty gritty of what it means to focus on one shot at a time. You're not thinking about the outcome. You're not thinking about the last shot. You're only focused on those ingredients of the routine. Yeah. When I always kind of, I didn't str struggle with the idea. I understand it. But one thing that helped me when I was playing was kind of think it as one commitment at a time. 
because mm-hmm. after I played 18 holes and I, you know, I played okay or didn't play good, I'd look back and think, how many shots did I not commit to? Right. That because better to commit to the wrong shot than not commit at all. Right. And that really helped me. Like, and I could sit back, I'm like, oh, that chip, you know, I thought I was going to hit a flop, but I ended up hitting a bump and run and like I made double. Like, and it was amazing how many dots I could connect to the, sh- the shots I just didn't commit to. Right. When in doubt. A great objective. That's a great objective for golfers to have, any golfer to have, is making sure you have a plan, a clear plan before you get up over the ball. Right. All right, Patrick, last question, and then we'll get you out of here. You're looking our Instagram or Twitter followers in the eye, and let's say they're a classic 12 handicap. They play a couple times a month. If you have, what is one mental part of their game that most of them probably are getting wrong or holding back their performance? If they listen to nothing else in this interview, what should they take away? Great question. So the first thing I would say is make sure you're working on your putting and your putting touch. You're going to shave two or three strokes off your score if you're working on your putting touch and you're eliminating three putts. That's more of a physical uh, practice tip for certain. Meaning distance control. Yes. But it's a mindset. Distance control, eliminating three putts. I even do that with the professionals and college golfers. I have some specific drills I share with them. Um, but from the mental side, I do think it's about consistent mental preparation breeds consistent performance. Let's not take five swing keys out there and jump around based upon the last shot and how the last shot went. Let's stick to that one, maybe a backup swing cue or swing key. Try to be really consistent with your approach, your mental preparation in terms of you know, as Matt said, get a plan, commit to it, set up the same way every time, and think about that one swing cue that's been working for you on the range and try to keep it that simple. There you go. I love the putting touch too, right? Where are we going to shave shots when you're focusing on speed, right? That's a different mindset than most. Amateurs will, will discount that because they, they're too busy, you know, working on the range. And it's really the putting. If you could go from 36 putts around to 32 putts around, you just shave four strokes off your score. Right. Yep. If you less three putts, Big. we'll do it. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Patrick, for coming on. Uh, if you guys want to learn more about Patrick's great work, go to, let's see if I get these right. There's three options here. You, there's probably more. Peaksports.com, the Golf Psychology Podcast, which I'm sure our listeners would love, and sportspsychologygolf.com. Anywhere else you want to send people or anything else you want to finish on? No, that's great. They can follow us on Instagram at sportspsychcoach as well. We give some nice tips there, and I do some short videos on uh, reels. Um, so that would be another option too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Um, Great conversation. Hope you have a great rest of your week. We love this. Hey, great questions today, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you.